chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 as we'll be. As you're turning there, last week we observed Peter and John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raise a lame man up to walk again. And then with boldness he confronts, as it states in Acts 3.12, the men of Israel as to why they are surprised regarding the lame, lame man's healing. And he immediately gave the glory to God for healing the lame man. As we come into Acts chapter 4, we see some of the first instances of persecution directed towards the church. Throughout history, we have observed that one of the purposes of persecution is to destroy Christianity. However, the opposite has many times taken place. Rather than destroying the church, persecution has actually served to strengthen the church. So today we see a multitude of ways that Satan seeks to destroy the church. And I think sometimes it's most often accomplished, or it is sought to be accomplished from within. And it happens through things such as self-centeredness, pride, apathy, a lack of commitment, worldliness, and selfishness, to name just a few things that invade the church and cause it to lose its effectiveness. But regardless of what man may, uh, what man may invade God's church, God's word reminds us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'm thankful for that. We always have a copy of God's Word, and I'm thankful for that. How many times throughout history has man tried to destroy the Word of God? Uh, there have been throughout history uh, times when the Bible has been uh, burned, and they've been piled up and burned, and, and yet they cannot destroy every copy of God's Word. It just continues to go forth, and I'm thankful for that. But God's Word in several places tells us that we shouldn't be shocked when persecution comes. In fact, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Right then and there, God says that our position of life is not here in this world. It is outside this world, because as we've known, as we've been reminded of many times, that God's word reminds us that we are pilgrims, we are sojourners, we are aliens, we are pilgrims. Our citizenship is not here in this world. There is nothing in this world that can compare to what is to come for us as God's children. So he says, I have not chosen you because you're out of this world. You're not part of this world. Then he goes on to verse 20. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So the bottom line is we ought not be shocked. We ought not be surprised that when we make a stand, that when we take a stand on God's word, on God's principles, on God's truth, we ought not be surprised that people are going to oppose it. In John chapter 16, verse 2, says, They will ban you from synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will even offer their persecution in a form of religiosity that will make them feel good about the fact that they are trying to destroy you in the name of God. Do we see that happening in our world today? In the name of Allah, their God? In the name of Islam, they are trying to destroy, and they're doing it in a way that it seems religious and right to them. But it happens. If you stand for what's right, if you stand for what's true, you're going to face it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. 
If you take a stand, if you stand up for what's right, there are going to be those who will oppose you. And you ought not be shocked about it. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So that when we are facing those times of persecution, we have to know how to handle it from following the life of Christ. But we ought not to be shocked about it. So there's no doubt that some folks were not happy <clears throat> excuse me, about what they were seeing and hearing about Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 and, verse, and ch Acts chapter 4. So if you would, I want, to, I want you to just listen as we get into chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. It says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them, because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. So they seized them and put them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, scribes assembled in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family, after, that, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power and what, and what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. So the message was offensive. There's no question about that. You say, well, how do I know that the message was effective? Well, if you look back in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 26, it says, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil way. Well, who wants to be told that the way that they're living, that the way that they are conducting themselves and the things that they believe are not right? What's the first thing that we do in our flesh when someone says that what you're doing is wrong and what you believe is wrong? The first thing we do is what? We get our defenses up and we get upset about it. And you go, Who are you to tell me what I should think? Who are you to tell me what I should believe? And here it is. Peter and John are with boldness proclaiming what Jesus Christ had done, giving him all the glory. And here they're upset about it. So he says... God raised his son, his, up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you. And look at this. This is kind of interesting. It's almost an oxymoron. I'm going to bless you by what? Turning, uh, turning each of you from your evil ways. There's the blessing of realizing that the direction that you're going is wrong, and we're going to get you on the right path, and that's a blessing to you. How often do we look at it as a blessing when someone wants to confront the way we think or believe or act? That's not how our flesh operates, right? Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Don't tell me what I believe is wrong. It's actually a blessing, he says, because I've sent you to bless them by helping them turn on the right path. But people never want to hear the truth concerning their own sinfulness, right? Um, they were provoked over the message. You can't be teaching and proclaiming the message to the people. Why? Well, the first big hubbub about healing the lame man, 
I mean, who, who do you think you are? I mean, I mean, by how, whose power do you think this is accomplished? They asked him later. Uh, so secondly, by Jesus' resurrection from the grave, they were provoked by this message. And you, see, you can't be proclaiming this message. But here's the real problem, or what's the real problem? Well, notice the three groups of people that were offended. First of all, you got the priests. Now, who in the world would ever think or imagine that a priest, someone who is supposed to be, if we use this word loosely, quote-unquote, religious, it, you know, these are the priests, the religious folks that conducted the sacrifices. But they were upset about it. And we'll come to that a little bit later. But then there's the commander of, if you will, the temple police. Uh, they were right behind the high priest, and they kept the peace and order in and around the temple yard. Uh, so it was their job to keep order and keep peace. And if somebody is promoting a truth or a gospel or a message that is different than the one we want to hold to, well, we're not going to put up with that. I mean... I have the right to believe what I want to believe, but, you know, I want you to believe what I believe, too. So if you're going to preach something different than what I believe, well, we're going to deal with that. We're not going to let that go forward. And then there were the Sadducees, the influential religious leaders, often politically motivated, mostly wealthy landowners who held positions of clout in and about the temple and around the temple. So these groups of people here, they're upset, they're ticked off that somebody else is going to proclaim a truth about Jesus Christ and, and him crucified and resurrected from the grave. We can't be having that. But here's the problem. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. In fact, if you look at your Bibles in Acts chapter 23 and verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. So in their minds, you cannot be preaching something and teaching something that we don't believe. And if you continue to do this, there's going to be a problem. So they were offended by the fact that the truth was going forward. But notice that their response is not a new one. It was the same opposition that came, came after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, uh, and, uh, verse 45. In fact, hold on just a second. I'll read that for you. It's interesting. John eleven forty five says this. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, convened in the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does so many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. I mean, here, here it is. So they confronted Peter and John, and they jailed him. We see that in verse 1 and verse 3. It says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, the Sadducees confronted them. That means they went before them, they confronted them, and they apprehended them. Then you look it down in verse 3. So they seized them and put them into custody. They basically said, Listen, if you're not going to stop putting this, uh, preaching this truth, we're going to throw you in jail, and we'll, we'll deal with it later. So that's exactly what they did. So here's the problem. The religious and political leaders did not want to lose their clout. They wanted to maintain the respectable place amongst the people. See, them it was more important to hold their position of authority, their position of clout, than being a big wig around and about the temple and the yard around it and the town there. It was more important to them to have their position than for people to know the truth. And how often do we see that happening even in our day and age? is that there are people who are willing to not give up their position, to not give up the truth, or not give up their position of clout and their position of what they think is respectability, rather than the truth be known. 
we have to understand that there is a way to do things. There's a way that needs to go to present the gospel and to get the truth out, and it's going to be offensive at times. So the response is not a new one. Every time something was done, they would confront. And it's almost as if you will, they went in tattletale, in tattletale mode, and we're going to go run and tell the Pharisees, we're going to go tell the chief priests, and we're going to go tell the, the, or the Sanhedrin, and you're going to have to get in trouble over this. Because we don't want to change, and we don't want you messing with our position in this area of life. So what happened as a result of their boldness? We see the answer to that in verse 4. It says, but many of those who heard it, the message, excuse me, believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So what happened? Many of those who heard believed. You see, here's the deal. When the message goes out, some will believe. But if the message doesn't go out, something's missing. It says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. And guess what, folks? We have a message to go forth. And it's through the message, the, the, the spoken word, that oftentimes God uses to change a heart and a life for himself. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So some of those that heard believed, and it says, it says about 5,000 men in number began to believe. What an awesome opportunity to see God at work. Um, says, what happened as a result here? Many believed. Peter and John had to face the music, though. So you had the rulers and the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the who were the experts of the law. You remember, uh, I don't know, maybe sometime last year we talked about the position of the scribes. They weren't just people who sat around and, and copied Scripture. They were the ones who were considered the quote-unquote experts of the law. They are the ones who sit in the temple gates, in the, in the city gates, and they would resolve... Uh, legal matters, and they would be uh, almost as it were an attorney or a lawyer for those who uh, wanted to, you know, ha have some type of defense for, for what their uh, circumstances may have been or whatever. But they were legal experts of the law. And then there's Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, members of the high priestly family. All these people that John and Peter were come, who were who were gathered around, and John and Peter were ushered in, and as you were standing right before them all to, to you know to face the music, so to speak, and they were asked one question: By what power or in what name have you done this? And this is where it gets really exciting for me as a as a preacher. You look at well, the circumstances of what's taken place. And you remember, Peter is the one that so often throws scripture, you say, man, that guy just spoke way too prematurely. I mean, open mouth, insert foot. He's the one that just always just, blah, you know, and it just came out without thinking first. I can relate to that sometimes. Um, no, nothing from the peanut gallery. Um, there are times that he just, blah, and, and it would come out, and he'd say, man, why, why did I do that? All of a sudden, Peter is filled with power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 8. Verses 8 through 12 once again. Or verse 8 through 11, excuse me. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done into a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before your before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the you builders, which has become the cornerstone. So 
First of all, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's overcome with boldness. And he's mindful of the facts. What are the facts? This is the man whom you crucified. Who was raised from the dead. By his power, this man has been healed. And by his power, this man is standing before you today healthy. You crucified this man. But it's his power that has made this man healed. Notice what happens in difficult situations. If you would, keep your fingers there in Acts 4, but turn over to Luke chapter 12. Remember, Acts, we've said from the beginning, is kind of a continuation of the book of Luke. But what happened in Luke chapter 12 is interesting as well. Luke chapter 12, just a couple of verses here. Verses 11 and 12. It says, Whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about what, how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Notice what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up? He takes over. He comes in and he says, you don't worry about this. We got this covered. You just do what you need to do. God will take care of the rest. Just, just, just stand up for what's right. And in Luke chapter 21 and verse 15, it says, For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up in difficult situations. You stand up for what's right. You proclaim the truth. God will give you the words. How many of you have ever been in a conversation where you're trying to explain a truth of the gospel to somebody, and you're just for a moment at a loss of words, and then the Holy Spirit begins to bring things to your attention? That happens so often. I don't, I, I'm, t I'm just telling you. Some people say they got chemo brain. I, I, I've been born with that. I, I don't have a great memory. But what I do know is this. How many times I've had a conversation with somebody and I think, I know there's a verse in that and God will just bring it to my attention. I don't have it memorized. I don't know all the details of every little spot. But I know that the Holy Spirit's words will come to, come to, come to light in the moment that I need them. And that's exactly what's happening for these people. They're in those difficult situations. There are those who are confronting them concerning the truth. They don't like it. They don't want to be told the truth. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit shows up and does what the Holy Spirit does. It takes over the situation. And our job is just to trust God and let him do what he does best. How about a little bit later in our passage? We'll get to it later. We're not going to spend a lot of time. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, Stephen saw this many times in his ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. In uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 10. And let me just say verse 8 too. Stephen, full of grace and power. Verse 10. But they were not unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. When the spirit is working in and through, man cannot refute that. And so we need to trust what the Holy Spirit can do in and through us. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 55. Once again with Peter. And listen. In verse 55 he says, But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Look at back at verse 51. Who was he dealing with? 
It says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit <clears throat> as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of you prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. You said you're constantly, you're stiff-arming you're, you're stiff God and, you're, and you've raised your neck against God. But it's the Holy Spirit that's going to change the heart. So, what is the supreme subject here? Acts chapter 4. He says down here, verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. That's the only way that Peter and John could stand before this host of people and defend themselves. And really, he wasn't even defending themselves. But the only way that he could have that boldness and that power was for the Holy Spirit to be working in and through him to accomplish whatever it is that he wanted to accomplish. But with boldness, he confronts them and what they were at their heart. They were persecutors. They were the ones that nailed Jesus Christ to the tree. He says, this man named Jesus. And then he comes down here, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. There is, first of all, salvation, as it says in the first three words of that verse. There is salvation. Isn't that awesome? Don't you love that? Amen. Because without it, we'd all be destined to hell. There is salvation. And that's awesome because 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, these, these things have I written unto you who believe that ye may what? Wish. Hope. Yes. Know that you have eternal life. There is salvation. And we can have confidence in the fact that we can know Jesus Christ as our Savior. But also it says there in that verse, there is salvation in no one else. In fact, John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me, says Jesus Christ. There is salvation, but it only comes through Jesus Christ. And it says there is no other name. No one else can offer this salvation. No one. It has to come through Jesus Christ and no one else. There's only one way to be saved. I remember in my first pastorate uh, in Tippecanoe, Indiana, and this, this fellow came up to me and he goes, Pastor, he goes, I don't understand what all the hubbub is. And I said, about what? And he looked at me and he goes, well, you know, so this guy's a Methodist and this guy's a Lutheran and that guy's a Church of Christ and that guy's a whatever. He says, we're all getting there, just going on different paths. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, do you believe the Bible? He goes, well, yeah. That's why I've been going to this church for 20 years. I said, right. I said, if you believe the Bible, then I said, you have to believe what's in the Bible, right? And he goes, well, yeah. I said, well, there's only one way. And I said, it's not by being religious, and it's not by being part of a denomination. And he kind of looks at me. I said, so what I'm saying there is, I said, there's not many roads getting to the same place. There's lots of roads, but they're not all going the same place. It says in the Bible, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways that seem right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, there's only one way. You say, well, you Baptists are exclusive. No, it's not about even Baptists. There's a lot of Baptists preaching wrong theology too. The bottom line is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Savior? Have you repented of your sins and called on Jesus Christ to forgive you and to be your Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? So the brunt of the message here, as 
as they are facing this council, as they're facing all these religious people, as they're facing all these priests and all these highly influential people of their day, they didn't like the fact that the truth was going out. They didn't like the fact that there was potential that if too many people begin to believe what these guys are saying and what God is doing through them, we might lose our spot in, in, our, in our society here. We can't be having that. And here's the brunt of it. Many do not want to hear the truth. But many will believe. And secondly, boldness amidst persecution may result in the Holy Spirit working mightily in and through us. You see, we pray for life of ease, as I've said before. We don't want difficulty. I mean, we go on a trip, we ask God for what? Protection. And every time we get sick, we ask God for healing. And every time something, there's a potential of something to go wrong, well, we want to head that off at the past and make sure that we don't have to go through that because we want a simple, easy life, don't we? Anybody not want that? Right. We pray for those things. But it's the very thing that God often uses to make us and to mold us into who he wants us to be. And sometimes <coughs> we get upset about the trial. And God's saying, wait a minute, the trial is what I'm using in your life. I've allowed this on purpose for you. And when we go through difficult times and trials and testings in our life, it makes us dependent on God. It makes us dependent on God. And we need that. Too often we operate in the flesh rather than letting the Holy Spirit work through us. You know, Peter and John could have stood before the council and said, you know what, guys, I'm sorry, I should just shut my mouth and go home. Did he do that? No, because the Holy Spirit worked through him. What about Jesus as he was facing those criticizers? You know what, this is, God, this is too much. No, he stood up. And he said, the Holy Spirit will speak at the very moment that you need a word, he'll give it to you. As long as we're operating in the flesh, you can't operate in the spirit because you can't walk on both sides at the same time. So it's better just to submit and say, God, work through me. In fact, that's what God wants to do. We've said that many times, 2 Chronicles 16, for the eyes of God run to and fro throughout the whole earth to do one thing, to show himself strong and him whose heart is perfect towards him. In other words, God says, I'm looking for people that I can show myself through. That's what I'm looking for. And the person who will let me do that, I'll do it. See, we don't have to be strong in our own might. We don't have to have our, you know, great vocabulary and be great speakers. We don't, we don't have to. It's about God working in and through us to accomplish what he wants. So boldness amidst persecution can only re happen when we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to accomplish what he wants. And we come to this conclusion in verse 12 as he stands before this council. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. This man named Jesus, this man named who healed this man, that's the only name that we can trust. And by that name, they stood before that council with boldness. And we're going to get into it, verse 13, next week. But look at this. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, 
they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if that could be our testimony? I'm just saying, I fail. I fall way too short on that. But it would be my desire that when I talk with people that, man, he's not too smart, but he's been with Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be really great? If people around us could see that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that would be awesome. But it can only come as a result of letting the Holy Spirit work in and through us. Throughout this whole book, we're going to see the example of the Holy Spirit doing powerful things through God's people. But it's only when you let the Holy Spirit work through you. See, all of us have a choice today. All of us. We can choose to live in the flesh and do our own thing. And maybe see some good things happen. Or we can choose to live through the Holy Spirit and let God work in and through us to accomplish what He wants in and through us. How do I know that? Well, in Romans chapter 8, it says, They that mind the things of the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. And they that mind, you know, the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So it is a choice daily to live in the flesh or to live in the Spirit. And I'm just telling you, the struggle is very real some days, is it not? It is a struggle. I'll close with this. I heard an illustration years ago about two big dogs. One was white, one was black. They're both the same size. Both have the same muscle structure. Both had big gnarly teeth. Both had big eyes. Both of them had a stance that was just incredible. And they're about to fight. And the question was asked, which one do you think will win? From appearance, they look pretty even. From appearance. But the question was asked, which one do you think would win if they had to get in a fight? You know what the answer is? The one that you fed. The one that is stronger. The one that you continue to feed. And they went on to say in the illustration that the white one represented the Holy Spirit and the black one represented Satan and the flesh. And the one that's going to win the fight is the one that you feed the most. They might look the same, but the one that is fed and, and has good nutrition is the one that's going to win. The one that is well watered, the one that has been taken care of. But you know what I find in our own lives every day is that we feed the flesh or we feed the spirit. It's all of us. You know what one's going to control your life? The one that you feed. You feed the flesh, it's going to dominate you. You feed the spirit, it'll work through you. It's a choice. Which one are you going to feed? And I'm telling you, some days it's a battle. Because we want what we want. We're selfish at our core, aren't we? Let's admit it. We're selfish. We want what we want. And we don't want anybody to inconvenience us. So which one do we need to feed? We need to be feeding the Spirit, letting God work through us. Being filled daily with the Spirit.